You're listening to the Vet Chat NZ. We're a local podcast hosted by vets and chatting to industry experts about the hottest topics in animal health. We hope you enjoyed listening. Hi to all our Vet Chat listeners. I'm Sumari Putkite, your host for today. And today we'll be talking to Jordana White. She is the manager of the Wildlife Hospital in Dunedin. And the topic that we'll be covering is birds and bats and what vets can do in hospital to make their life a little bit easier when these creatures show up. Hi, Jordana. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to all the knowledge that you'll be sharing with us. Um, But first, introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, I've been involved with the Janine Wildlife Hospital basically since day zero. I met uh, Dr. Lisa Argilla, who is our sort of our visionary and our founder, way back in 2015, uh, when she told me about her vision for the Wildlife Hospital here. And basically, after you know one conversation, I was on board to help things get started. Um, so I have a background in community development and funding. Uh, obviously, Lisa has a background. She's an avian and wildlife vet. And we thought together the two of us could probably do something really exciting. And we, we spent a few years getting it going. And the Deneen Wildlife Hospital opened its doors uh, January 2018. So my role is actually the manager of the trust that runs the wildlife hospital. So I'm not, I'm just for your listeners, just it will become apparent as we chat, but I'm not a vet or a vet nurse. Um, I do have a background also in conservation, just as um, sort of a hands-on person and getting really involved locally in uh, Dunedin conservation and wildlife. So that's how I really came into it. Like many good things in life, it's somewhat accidental, but it's a dream job, absolutely a dream job. Creature Feature is a monthly radio spot that I do on Otago Access Radio, where we highlight uh, a patient that's been in the hospital uh, recently. And I do try every month to make it a different species just so I can get a little bit more information out there for the public around all of our native species as well as the kind of different challenges they're facing, talk about their injuries or their illness, but also about their personalities while they're in hospital and um, try to try to make it really interesting for a general audience, which is really fun. And we actually have two parts to our mission. So we're obviously interested in, in healing sick and injured native species, but we're also interested in educating people about conservation, about our native species and, and about sort of the, the issues they're facing and how people can get involved to improve those situations. So that education, is really important to us. So this, I think this podcast is probably a perfect marriage between the two. Um, So we'll be talking a little bit more technical about some of the cases and what we see, but also educating people, hopefully around the world, about native New Zealand species. We also go out and do a lot of talks in the community um, to schools and service groups, community groups, uh, retirement villages, that kind of thing, just to get the word out. That is so great. You do amazing work. Yeah, Dunedin is known as the wildlife capital of New Zealand. Uh, We are really, really blessed here with, um, for example, the Otago Peninsula. If your uh, local listeners are familiar with that, as as the name suggests, there's a big peninsula here um, in Dunedin. And there's there's quite a lot of native wildlife out on that peninsula. And sort of, I would say, a local history of of looking after wildlife as well. I just should point out, we have the, the word Dunedin in our name. Um, that's based on where we're located, but we certainly take wildlife from all across the South Island. Um, so we aren't just just the super local wildlife. We're taking things like kakapo and kia and uh, other species that aren't necessarily found in the immediate area. Well, that's good to know. I was curious about that being 
named Dunedin, where the UN located them for the local vets and community. But it's so great that there is that resource um, for all vets actually to use down the South Island. One thing um, that I would like to convey today is that vets can actually handle some of these cases in clinic. They can definitely, some of the simpler cases, but also there is a triage that they can go through to figure out whether it's worth their while to spend time on these animals. But then also some of them might need in doc intervention, for instance, and they might have to go to hospitals that are geared towards catering for these patients, for instance, then like the Wildlife Hospital in Van Eden. Um, yeah, so I hope with your knowledge and the research that I did around this topic, we'll be able to give some guidance then also to our great New Zealand vets on um, how to tackle these cases. Absolutely. And, and I do want to say, uh, absolutely back you up on what you're saying around vets wanting to do their best for wildlife and wanting to help. And that was certainly the case here in Dunedin before we opened. There were local vets. Some of them became quite known for, you know, wanting to do a little bit more work with wildlife and helping doc um, where they could, including with the, the hoi hoi yellow penguins. Um, and they were, they were doing their best, but the, I think the, the issue there was there's a difference between, you know, some small procedures where you can, you can just send them out after maybe they just need an overnight at the vet clinic versus the hospital level care. So I think that's the real delineation, but it's, it's certainly not to take away from the good work that the local vets were doing because they're doing their absolute best. Yes. So I think one thing um, that's really unique to New Zealand is that they have so, so many indigenous birds um, that are unique to New Zealand itself. And that is because um, of New Zealand's history, you know, and the way New Zealand um, developed way back. And it's this unique archipelago which contributed then to our diverse bird species. And so I think looking at that, most of the birds that we encountered in New Zealand would be ones that we want to save or what would you say? Sure, yeah, we, and you're absolutely right. We have a lot of endemic species here, so species that are found nowhere else. Um, we even have, shrinking it down, we even have species that are endemic just to the South Island uh, that wouldn't be found anywhere but the South Island, which is pretty cool. And that is one point of difference for us as well at the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital is that we only treat native species. So we don't we don't treat any of the introduced species uh, and unless, of course, they're self-introduced. That is one of the sort of uh, thresholds for if we call a species native or not. Um, so if they've flown over from Australia, for example, that's fine. If they've done that themselves, that becomes a native species. And is there a list somewhere for vets who are not like avid birders or, for instance, like me? You know, I, I'm... I like wildlife, but I am not familiar with New Zealand wildlife. Yeah, I would recommend if you're not sure, there's a few few options. So there's NZ Birds Online, which I definitely recommend. So that's essentially an encyclopedia of New Zealand birds. Uh, it will include birds that there are listings for birds that are found in New Zealand, but aren't endemic. So it will tell you or na native or endemic. So it will tell you their status if they're native or introduced. And that, that can be quite useful. Now, you don't always necessarily know what you're looking at. So that's a different problem. So that can be mm. more challenging if you need to um, look something up. So I, I would suggest that um, if, you've, if you've got something in your clinic that you're not sure if it's what it is or if it's native, um, so simply to take a picture of it and send it to your local doc office. Probably the best okay. way to get something identified, especially locally. Um, they'll know what birds are in the area, who lives in the area. 
they'll certainly be able to tell you if it's native or not. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so apart from New Zealand's bird species just being really, really unique and really interesting, and that we want to preserve that, we also have the, the flip side where a lot of these species are endangered and we can contribute to actually raising the numbers or saving them. And um, it's not just a nice thing to do. It's uh, something we have to do as vets. You know, we have to um, look after those birds and, and the public as well. So they have certain responsibilities when it comes to that. Is there a specific list just of endangered, like highly endangered birds that a vet can maybe have that they might encounter because I know not all those species will actually be seen in private practice because most of them might be in areas where there are conservation efforts. So you won't just see them in general practice. But um, just a general idea, where, where can we see those ones? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there, if you go to DOC's website, uh, it, there is a search bar and you can put in threat level classification. So that will bring up a chart of and different they actually have different documents so there's one for birds that gives a list of birds based on threat level classification so you can see if they're um, nationally critical which is locally our, our highest threat level classification or if they're not threatened i could tell you about roughly about 60 i think we're at 63 percent of the patients that we uh, admit at the wildlife hospital are considered threatened species so that's most of our patients are threatened species. And some of those might surprise you. We, For example, red-billed gulls are a threatened species. Things are starting to change for that species. So it could be quite surprising to see what their threat level is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I will say, as you pointed out, some of those really rare birds would be less likely to turn up at practices. Uh, and they might be quite highly specific to a, a geographic location. But that said, it's wildlife, so you should expect the unexpected. So we have we have had some um, pretty unusual birds turn up in some pretty unusual places. We've had, uh, for example, we've had albatross. Uh, we received a call from Doc saying, oh, we've got an albatross coming to you from Alexandra. So for, for those of you who don't know that, that's central Otago. That is no ocean anywhere near. Um, and an albatross is mm. definitely a pelagic seabird and shouldn't be anywhere near Alexandra. We thought surely not. That's probably a mistake because a lot of times people will think that they're looking at an albatross, but it's actually a blackback gull, um, which is quite a large bird in itself, but certainly not as big as an albatross. But if you don't know, you know, if you don't know, that's under, an understandable mistake. Yeah. But fair enough, when that bird turned up, it was an albatross. So just <laughs> never know. Things can happen. Um, seabirds are actually quite a good example of turning up in strange places because they can get storm wrecked. So they get tossed around in bad weather. Uh, and they end up, you know, being disoriented. They might get drawn in by um, lights on land. If they're, if they're caught up in bad weather in a storm, they generally are, you know, quite exhausted and maybe not in great shape. So mm-hmm. if they land on the ground, they can't take off again. So mm-hmm. species like albatross needs either re- like really um, specific wind to get lift to take off or they need to be up on a cliff top, um, which is where they can get the lift. So once they're on the ground, they can't leave again. So that's yeah. that's a great example. And so you might you might find yourself with some pretty unusual species in your vet clinic. Yeah, yeah. And are vets allowed to do um, primary care on those birds? 
and you know or do they need to phone doc or a specialist hospital right away or can they just stabilize those births for a start? yes stabilization absolutely so the vets have sort of special dispensation um, to provide that medical care. So I would say if if it's a triage situation, focus on that first, the, the triage things. But I would say a quick second would be a phone call to your local doc office or to a wildlife hospital if you have one in the area. Mm-hmm. And what would be the responsible thing to do for the general public if they are the first responders? You know, they go for a tramp and there's a bird there and they want to help. It is often the case that public are the first ones to come across an injured uh, native animal, um, certainly with shorebirds and seabirds. So in the first instance, we recommend people ringing the Department of Conservation. So they are the treaty partner with Manafenua to look after our native wildlife. So they're really the ones that need to make the decisions. Um, so that's that we, we don't ask the public to ring us if they find an injured animal. We ask them to ring DOC. And I'd say at this point, most people will have smartphones with them. And I think it is really good advice for people to take a photo of the animal because they may not know whether or not it's native. They may not know if it's a normal behavior for that animal to be doing what they're doing. Um, That can be really helpful for the rangers to to help them make a decision. And they can either ring their local dock office or they can call the dock hotline, which is the weekend and after hours number. And that's simply 0800 dock hot. So that's D-O-C-H-O-T. And you can be asked to connect into the local duty officer and they'll give you advice. So for how we operate, and I imagine many other wildlife hospitals operate, is we ask DOC to make the connection between ourselves and the members of the public who may have that injured animal. Okay. And obviously that is something that private vets can also then do. You know, they can refer a client to DOC if they phone in and say, hey, let's work through DOC. So that could be, that would be step one. Absolutely. So if somebody rings your clinic and says, oh, a ketadu hit my window and should I bring it in? Absolutely. That's a good response. And it may be that that local doc office would ask a person to bring it into your clinic, or it may be that they divert it to a wildlife hospital or other facility. And I think that is really, really great for vets to know, you know, that they have that support as well. Absolutely. And I, we, the way we operate and the way that the law, my understanding of the law here operates is that animal welfare will always be at the top. So if it's an issue, if you think an animal is in pain um, or needs immediate assistance, then that is what you should do and worry about the bureaucracy later. Not much later, probably in most cases. And Doc does want to hear about native species that are coming into your clinic. So you should be reporting that. That's right. After that animal is stabilized, then you can figure out whether it needs to then get further rehab care and then take it from there and refer it wherever it needs to go. Yeah, that's right. And I'm glad you mentioned rehabbers because that that's a, a network that is also quite a valuable resource to um, veterinary professionals. Um, there is a, a wildlife rehabber network of New Zealand that you could tap into and they have a great website with a lot of information. I would suggest if you have the time and space is to be a bit proactive about it and start reaching out to your local network of rehabbers and the doc office. And if there's a wildlife hospital in the area, Um, to start establishing those connections and to understand who to call and what circumstances that will serve you really well when you've got something in front of you and you already know who to call. Um, So that that Wildlife uh, Rehab Network of New Zealand is uh, a group of people who receive pretty good training through their network and and they would have DOC permits to do that rehab work, which is really essential. Um, You don't want to be working with anybody who is not permitted by the Department of Conservation to work with wildlife. Okay, good. So um, for our listeners, I'll be adding all these links 
in the podcast notes so that you can easily find all these resources um, that we're mentioning in our talk today. Yeah, and just make it easier for you to, to make contact with those people around you to form a team to help these birds and the wildlife. And that then leads me into bats. So interestingly enough, I'm going to lump bats in our talk today. And that is because we had, I think it was in 2021, that Forest and Bird, the conservation group that holds the Bird of the Year contest, decided to include the bats as one of the um, contestants. I think they're so cool. And I, I think there's a few reasons for their inclusion in Bird of the Year. And I think one is simply awareness. A lot of people didn't realize that New Zealand had native bats. Just the whole Bird of the Year competition, it, like if you're if you're listening from overseas and you're not familiar with it, get in amongst it. It is the best time of the year. It's really fun. That is, there's really cool, interesting things you'll learn about new species. And the people who are behind these campaigns for Bird of the Year are creative and funny and really good at science communication. But it also should point out that um, for some iwi, so for some indigenous tribes here in New Zealand, the peka peka, the bat, is considered a manu or a bird. So they don't differentiate between the bat being a mammal and birds that is that is uh, lumped in with other birds species as well. So there is sort of a cultural um, justification as well for including them in Bird of the Year. I like that. Also interesting on the doc website is the bird songs that they've recorded there. So one that I would like to play is called the Dawn Chorus. And I would like listeners to see if they can identify the bird in the foreground. Can you imagine arriving in New Zealand and hearing that? Every every day, every morning, all the time, I think it's a wonderful goal for us to restore the dawn chorus back to our native lands. Absolutely. I was thinking of that. And in the ecological islands that we then currently have going in New Zealand, what would you say, how far are they along the route of reestablishing that original picture, you know, that, that was found here in New Zealand? Yeah, it's definitely a multi-generational long-term goal without question. In Dunedin, we have an eco-sanctuary called Orokanui, which is just north of the city. But it is starting to have what's called the halo effect, which is that means that outside of that predator-proof fence, you're starting to see some birds that wouldn't normally be there because of the, the issues with habitat loss and predators um, starting to sort of colonize outside of the fence and moving out. And that that's really... I think, proven to people locally into the community here that it can work and that we can actually um, we can actually come in underneath that and support it uh, around the edges, which is exactly what's happened here in Dunedin with something called the Halo Project. And that is the, in effect to try to extend out that eco-sanctuary beyond the fences, beyond that just the safe, safe island. There's also been a massive, there's the massive predator-free New Zealand, predator-free 2050 movement, which is, is this big, hairy, audacious goal of ridding ourselves of introduced predators by 2050. And I know that seems impossible and it is potentially is impossible. But if we don't reach for that really big goal, we're never we're never going to make movement towards it and improve things. Full disclosure, I am on the board of Predator Free Dunedin. So this is a piece of work that I'm really passionate about. 
and that I really believe in. And I, I see the difference that work has made here in Dunedin, um, not just around Orokanu Eco Sanctuary, but also in the city and on the, definitely on the Otago Peninsula. Um, there's a group, the Otago Peninsula Biodiversity Trust, that's been working on eradicating possums on the peninsula for quite a long time. And uh, down to probably the last 20 possums on the peninsula, um, which is wow. outstanding. Uh, and you can see the results are starting to, to come through in terms of vegetation, native vegetation growing back and being able to provide that critical habitat. So we are a long way off. It does require us to move just beyond those ecological islands. Um, we need to be doing more work in the urban areas. We have lots of opportunity now to make a difference. Um, and interestingly, as we move towards that predator-free goal, and we, we do start eliminating some of those pests, your listeners might actually notice an increase in native animals coming into their clinics needing help. So that will hopefully be a sign that the populations are starting to go up and therefore there's simply more of these species. Yeah, and for vets who want to be proactive, do they all need to go and do a master's degree? Or is there anything else that they can do if they feel really passionate about this? Well, this is where I'm definitely going to do a completely biased plug <laughs> because the, the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital has developed two different courses alongside the Otago Polytechnic, which is part of Te Pukenga. And the, the courses are designed specifically one for vet nurses and one for veterinarians who want to get a certificate in avian wildlife healthcare. Uh, and that is going to prepare people to understand patient support and management, triage, um, things like dosage rates around pain relief and that kind of thing, and really give you a, a really solid footing in the, the basics for avian healthcare. So that is really convenient for people who are working because it is done by distance uh, and you can take, uh, I think, up to a year to do the course. And there's just a, a one week practical placement where the vet or vet nurse will come into the wildlife hospital in Dunedin and get that practical hands on experience in our clinic. Wow, that is so convenient. So it's really, really within reach of all our vets if they feel that they want to look into that and equip themselves better for working with our avian patients. Okay, so we can have a look then at um, some factors to consider when weighing up the future of a bird or a bat. And that is for private vets, but as well for specialist clinics. And I think one of the things that you need to consider, definitely, or that vets need to consider is, is there a future for that animal? You know, will that animal be able to be reintroduced back into its natural environment? Because I guess if it's an animal that needs permanent care, it's incapacitated somehow, then it's probably kinder to euthanize it. Thinking about the future of the patient, yeah, that is the most important, I think, in the first step in, in your triage. Um, it, you're, you're absolutely right that if you think you can fix an injury such to the point where it could be, it would have to be uh, a, a captive animal, then that that's Pretty much your answer right there is that it would have to be a euthanasia case. Um, uh, and again, just going to say, just for legal purposes, I'm not a vet. Uh, but that is something that we have to consider always. It's extremely rare, extremely rare that you can place a native New Zealand animal in a permanent captivity situation. The other thing that I find I'm, I quite admire about wildlife vets like our team um, is that they really have to understand not just about how a bone might heal, for example, but to understand how that animal 
needs to operate in its native environment. And really they have to understand the ecology of the species to understand how, how much, you know, how, for example, if I fix this bone, if it has a limited um, range of motion, can this animal still thrive and engage in the natural activities that it needs to do to thrive? So they, they have to have a lot of knowledge around a lot of different species. And we've, we've had, I think, 87 different species come through the wildlife hospital in the last five years. Some of them will be quite similar to others. And a good example I would use would be falcons and harrier hawks. So here you have two mm -hmm. birds of prey, two raptor species, but with quite different requirements um, when they go back out into the wild in terms of feeding themselves. So you have harrier hawks, which do a lot of scavenging. So they're eating things that are already dead and not necessarily um, needing to hunt on the wing. So that's ones that you often see in the road, feeding on roadkill. In fact, that's why we often get them is because they've been hit by cars because they're feeding on roadkill. Mm -hmm. um, but a falcon needs to hunt on the wing. So they're flying and hunting and catching their prey at the same time. And they need to have almost perfect flight ability in order to feed themselves whereas mm. a harrier you can, you can get away with a little bit less you know perfect flight ability um, and it, the wildlife vets need to know the difference between those yeah. things they need to know where that line sits i think there's a difference between survivable and thrivable going back into the wilds they have to be able to thrive and then just some examples that i found where you will definitely need to consider euthanasia very strongly is open fractures, loss of eyesight, penetrating wounds into the body cavity, internal bleeding, limb amputations, spinal trauma, skull fractures, big amputation, and anything that will lead to permanent captivity. So those are like really severe examples. But I think these are um, some of the things that vets will definitely see in practice, especially by those ones that are hit by cars. Absolutely. And we see some of those catastrophic type of cases with as you say, being hit by cars. Amputation is an interesting one because there are some species that can absolutely thrive without a foot, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have one red-billed gull patient at the moment who came to us with one of its uh, feet already partially amputated by a piece of string. And so the vet team has opted for um, a, just a surgical amputation of the foot. And that is a, an amputation that a red-billed gull can live with. And they can actually adapt quite well to that. Um, so there are some cases where that is survivable, but yeah, we had a cockapool patient a few years back that we ended up doing, had to amputate her toes uh, and she had a stump and she adapted quite well to that. Um, we, we did a lot of rehab with her. There was a lot of rehab with that bird, no question. And, and really analyzing and understanding how well she was able to climb and feed herself and do all of the things that a cockapool needs to do. Um, and she, yeah, she was amazing. She certainly... The rangers will tell you that she didn't lose her climbing ability because then they try to go catch her for a health check. She'd be up a tree. So <laughs> they can make it. I would not have thought that. So that is really, really interesting. If a, a bird needs to be euthanized, obviously we still need to do it in a humane fashion um, and do it in the best way that we have available to us. And if you are comfortable, um, if a vet is comfortable with IV, then that would always be the best way of euthanizing a bird. But it can be quite hard doing IV in birds, especially if you don't do it often. So one thing that can be done is then just to give the bird some general gas anesthesia and then do an intra-organ injection of a barbiturate and you'd normally aim for the heart or the liver 
And something to remember then is that a higher volume of the barbiturate will be necessary to euthanize that bird. So common things that vets would probably see in clinic is a poisoning, whether it is with anticoagulants that were aimed at other pest species, our own pest species, and then alpha-chlorolose, which is also a poison that's put out for, for other pests and bait like barley and wheat is often used. So birds can obviously, go, you know, they won't know the difference. So they can, they can consume that as well. So I think that is probably the two poisons that we will see most often. Do you want to add to that? I would add to the list of potential toxins or poisons. And that is something that we see surprisingly often is lead toxicity or lead poisoning. And I'll explain, there's a few things we think in some urban environments, we think probably the smaller birds are finding it in a water source. For example, a puddle, or maybe they're they're bathing themselves in a in a gutter, and there's roofing, uh, you know, lead materials in the roofing, um, and they're ingesting it through water. Or one of the more common things is we'll get harrier hawks. Great example, because this is we the two reasons we get harrier hawks are being hit by cars, as we discussed, but then also lead toxicity, and that's because they're ingesting rabbit carcasses or other carcasses that were shot with lead pellets. Uh, and then they ingest the, the lead into their system as they're eating the carcass and they're affected neurologically that way. So it is something that we, we sort of just proactively are starting to test a lot of our patients for their lead levels just to make sure that there isn't that issue also, because sometimes they can come in with, you know, presenting with multiple issues and you don't necessarily realize that lead poisoning might be at, at the heart of something. Yeah, so that that's a, a bit of a shock for some people in New Zealand will think, oh, but we've banned lead pellets, which is not true. Uh, you just are not allowed to use lead pellets over waterways. So, for example, with uh, if seasonal duck hunting, um, duck hunters aren't allowed to use lead bullets because they don't want the lead in the waterways, which is fair enough. But it is in our environment and other places as well. So I am not a hunter. I don't know if there are good alternatives for um, shooting rabbits or other pests that don't involve lead, but sure hope somebody investigates that because we see an awful lot of that at our hospital. Uh, I think there's been a huge effort in New Zealand alpine areas to remove lead materials from huts and from other structures um, because of the kia. Um, Kia just absolutely love getting their beaks on things and they can't help themselves. And lead roofing nails are, it's quite a soft, um, pliable metal. And so they enjoy manipulating it with their beaks. So there's been quite a, quite an effort to remove that from the alpine environment. We have, unfortunately, have had Kia patients that have come to us with lead poisoning in the past for that reason. Very interesting. Part of the workup that we did at our clinics um, when I was in exotics was always to take an x-ray, basically a birdogram. Um, you have one one shot at it, so just get the whole bit in. Um, you know, just to check like for fractures and um, crop stasis, you can also diagnose on that, enlarged livers. And then we also check for lead in the crop. Obviously, it's not always the way that you will diagnose it. You need to do blood works as well. But sometimes it was just so obvious that there were bits of chipped off paint that was sitting there in the crop or we sometimes found um, an earring like a butterfly an earring like a really old bits of jewelry and so on and then we also did a blood smear to check for malaria 
and um, then general bloods as well. And so that was part of our workup. And we did a fecal. So we checked for parasites. So I think if vets are comfortable with that, and it's quite easy to do all those, you know, it's really, it's really basic, basic workups. And it can give you so much information about that patient. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think the, the x-ray is a hugely important diagnostic tool that we, even if, if the vet team is doing a, you know, they'll do a physical exam and can't necessarily detect that anything is broken, they'll take an x-ray because we have to assume, and this is kind of what they've taught me, is you just assume the bird is broken until the tools tell you otherwise. We have had a number of shags and other seabird diving seabirds that have swallowed lures and sinkers oh, yeah, yeah. Those are often made out of lead unfortunately um so we have certainly i have some pretty startling x-rays of a shag that had swallowed a lead sinker and you know it's obviously quite dangerous for the bird to have that material in their body anyway just to have the object in the body but then you think how long has it been sitting there and how yeah. much lead has been absorbed into the bloodstream from from that being in the stomach so on the NZBA website, there are some really, really good resources as well. And there is a document on poisoning and how to treat poisoning, especially then your anticoagulant and alpha chlorylose poisoning in birds. And um, lead poisoning also a long-term treatment, but quite easy. But um, that's one that you can easily find on the internet or, or the vets can phone you guys you know, for more info about that one then. So getting back to common conditions that vets will then see in private practice, I guess hypothermia is one of them, especially after a storm. And um, like we just experienced with Cyclone Gabrielle, and you mentioned that sometimes birds are then blown off course and they're weak. So hypothermia could definitely be something that our vets will see. And I think it's quite easily treatable. Just by hitting that bird up gradually with some heat pads, you know, something really practical that can be done in clinic. We have a number of incubators that we use. Some of them are ICU versions and some of them are just regular versions that we actually buy through the chicken supply store. And they, they work great for our patients, as you say, if they're hypothermic, if they've come in and they're storm wrecked. Um, we also use that those to support little chicks or if pre and post surgery as well is quite good to keep them in that um, very stable warm environment mm, now that we're talking about temperatures so bats need to be in a quite a high ambient temperature on the nzbi website there is a really really good resource well there are two good resources for first responders and then also vets uh, oc bats in clinic and yeah there they said that you can go you know 30 degrees even 32 degrees so it sounds really really hot but the idea behind that is is to keep bats from going into torpor and that is almost like hibernation but it is when their whole metabolism just slows down and you don't want them to go into torpor while they're in clinic because that will obviously impede any um, diagnostics that you want to do that you won't see if they're sick you won't see if they're injured and um, also it, it affects the treatment that you'll be giving because the bat won't be metabolizing those drugs as they would normally do when, when they're active. So um, very important if bats do come in and they're not in torpor yet, um, keep them out of torpor so that you can then just do a, a proper assessment on them and treat them as well. 
such a great example of needing to know the ecology of a species and understand how they operate because that's so different from other species that we treat and, and bird species anyhow. Yet torpor, torpor is not something you have to consider. So yeah, really good information that, that bats are going to behave quite differently. And we're lucky, really, really lucky here in New Zealand that the bats here don't carry rabies or the lesser virus. Right? So um, yeah, really, really safe to work with. And the only thing maybe to look out for are those sharp little teeth. Yeah, it's just for self-defense. The, the little buddies have just scared. Yeah, we, we take feisty wildlife as a good sign. So if they're trying to bite us and trying to kill us, it means they've got some fight left in them. So we do, we do see that, yeah. Okay, so one of the other conditions that I would like to discuss then is initiation. Okay, firstly, we probably need to tell how you condition school birds. So you feel, um, yeah, on the chest, you feel the keel and then the chest muscles around it. And it's almost like condition scoring sheep. So I don't know if you know <laughs> how to condition score sheep, but you also feel the spine and then the back muscles. And exactly the same, you know, if it's concave, um, it's a sign that that bird is in poor shape and there's a scale of one to five. And obviously if it's really rounded and it's almost like there's a, a dip where the sternum is, then that bird is really fat or actually a bit too fat. So you would like it to be about, I think especially for wildlife, a body condition score of about three. One to two would be getting a bit too thin and might show that the bird didn't really have um, access to good food or um, it's been flying around for a really long time and it's lost. So do you have any advice when a bird comes in and it's initiated? I think the first thing that you'd want to do is let's get food into this bird, but is it a good idea to feed it straight away? It's a good question and it's one thing you do have to be very careful for. Of course the instinct is to get it food straight away, but you do need to be careful um, that you're not putting it into refeeding syndrome, which is something that can really shock the system and cause organ failure uh, and then the animal can die um, simply by having just too much food too soon so it, it can it feels a bit counterintuitive but it does need to be a slow and measured build up if you have a true emaciation case we see that fairly regularly with penguin species oftentimes it will be a penguin has been injured and then that as a result can't hunt um, and then gets itself into a state of starvation and is emaciated and that that is one where that is a hospital case. That's not just a rehab case. If it's if it's emaciated, it that's a hospital level um, care required to avoid that refeeding syndrome. I don't have any guidance specifically because it will definitely be a case by case basis, and it will depend on the species. Um, but that is just generally something to be deeply aware of is the refeeding syndrome. You don't want to get yourself into a situation like that. And something that I found really, really difficult um, when I worked with birds was to figure out what to feed them sometimes. But how can birds um, approach this? Is there, um, you know, so there's, for instance, puppy and kitty milk replacers. Is there a really, really easy replacer for garden birds and for predators and and so forth or is it not as simple as that there are some uh products that are out there that we we actually do use some of them in the wildlife hospital um so some formulas and that kind of thing and replacers that you could have on hand because we see such a massive variety of species we keep those things in the freezer so that they're fresh and available when we need them um, but this is one that I would use your your network of rehabbers to lean on them for the appropriate types of diet and amounts, depending on the species, they will know best what to feed. Yeah. Is there anything a bit can have 
in clinic to ensure that they at least have something? There are a few things you could have on hand. So I, I think that meal, dried mealworms is a really good one. Um, some We do sometimes feed live mealworms as well, but obviously don't know if you're going to use those in a vet clinic. So you probably want to have the freeze-dried ones. That's pretty easy to have on hand. Um, yeah, there's some powdered formulas. I think possibly Top Flight has some of those uh, for sale in New Zealand that you could have in your freezer as well. And then there's also certainly a number of species that are nectar feeders. So just having um, the ingredients to mix up some nectar on hand would also be really useful. Yeah, yeah. Well, in hospital, we usually saw that the patients, they really, really didn't appreciate being in hospital and being out of their environment. And I can guess even more so for wildlife. So I guess most of the time they will not be eating by themselves and you kind of have to facilitate that. Yeah, that's often the case. It's usually a good sign if they're self-feeding. But yeah, there's certain species that don't like, they get stressed out in hospital and they don't like to um, feed themselves. And in that case, we're doing a lot of out tube feeding. Yeah, and that's that's true of seabirds and uh, forest birds across the board, really. Yeah, and that there are some, some species that you kind of have to I guess, train a little bit to self-feed. But yeah, crop feeding is an art and a science. And I know not everybody's going to be comfortable doing that with birds. And and that's just to say again about the wildlife, avian wildlife healthcare courses, that's something that you definitely learn in our courses for the vets and vet nurses, because it's it's quite, quite key and quite basic. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I was super scared to do my first crop feeding. We used crop noodles that stage and I was just super scared. It felt so unnatural doing it. But once I got the hang of it, it was the the best tool to have. And it was so gratifying just getting food into that patient and knowing that they're sorted, they're happy, they got what they needed. And also really, really handy is you can even sometimes mix some of the medicines into that food. So it reduces the handling frequency. And that's really something you want to aim for with wildlife is not handling them too often and too much and just mostly leaving them alone and let them be yeah that's exactly right it's a, it's a great point i was going to say that exact same thing with the the crop feeding is it does reduce handling if you do have a bird in your clinic that's maybe there overnight or for a couple of days um is to make sure that they have a quiet place in the hospital or in your clinic to recover um, from whatever shock or trauma they've had try and try not to interact with them too much it's very tempting to to speak to them and, and talk to them and interact with them as you would perhaps somebody's pet, but it's really best for them if they they're just left alone. So if you can't feed a bird, you can still give it fluids. So many of the birds that come in will probably be dehydrated. And one thing that I saw is if you are able to catch them, then they're probably weak and that would mean they're dehydrated. And I can't do harm giving a bit of fluids. Then you can do an assessment and check the hydration status of the bird and that's actually really easy to do you know you just find a bit of skin and you can do the normal denting test as we would do with any of our um, other pets that you would see in in private practice so hydration is often required and it helps to warm the fluids you know it's just a bit of a shock running cold fluids into a tiny patient and you can go for the IV route if, once again, um, if it's a bit that feels comfortable. I think the easiest one to do is probably just go subcut. And um, that can be done at the rate of about 50 moles per kilogram. And normal lactated bringers can be used. 
it can be spiked with a bit of glucose as well. But for that, I will also refer our listeners to the NZPA guideline and rather look at those ratios to be sure that it's done correctly. And then also in birds, something interesting to remember, and unfortunately, I think this is sometimes learned the hard way, or vets are reminded of this the hard way. You can give, give intraosseous fluid, but it's, it's important to choose the right bone. Most desirable bones to use would be the ulna on either wing or the tibiotarsis. And we need to remember this because birds have pneumatic bones, and that the humerus and the femur needs to be avoided for these reasons. So if in doubt, once again, just go and look quickly in a textbook or even online, just always remember when you go into osseous with fluids that some of those bones are pneumatic bones and you can actually drown the bird if you put fluids into those bones. So Susanna, one of the other conditions that vets would probably see in clinic um, is airway disease and birds are quite prone to that. Um, especially, you know, it's like us catching a cold when your immunity is compromised or when you're cold and, and exposed. But apart from that, also you know, birds have quite a unique bacteria, chlamydiosis, which is also a zoonosis. Is that something that you guys are worried about in clinic, catching psittacosis when you work with wildlife? Uh, yeah, the zoonotic diseases are always something that we're aware of. So it's definitely part of our health and safety plan. But Generally speaking, it's if you if you follow pretty normal health and safety guidelines that you would at any vet hospital or vet clinic, it's it's not too much to worry about. And hygiene obviously is even before COVID was pretty high on our list anyhow. And certainly between patients and between wards, especially, that's something also to be aware of is is making sure if you if you are treating uh, companion animals at your clinic, but you also have a wildlife case or wildlife cases, to get as much separation mm. as possible between them and make sure that you're really on top of your hygiene if you're moving back and forth between those areas yeah and the other way around humans giving diseases to wildlife is that anything you have to worry about ever it it certainly hasn't been an issue or a particular concern for us Um, i know there was probably early on some real questions around covid you know we could we pass covid to a patient for example um covid's not been a real problem for us in the hospital and nor with our patients this year this season and and certainly parts of the northern hemisphere and something we're keeping a close eye on in the southern hemisphere is the risk of avian influenza that's something that wildlife hospitals and in fact all vet clinics can really be at the forefront of surveillance and monitoring for avian influenza so for example one of the things that we're looking for is if we suddenly get an influx of a certain species and they're all presenting with say neurological symptoms then we would be on high alert for the potential for avian influenza to be on our shores. And uh, in particular in seabirds is is where we would expect it to sort of infiltrate coming from migratory birds from the Northern hemisphere to the Southern hemisphere, and then getting into our uh, pelagic seabirds and our shorebirds, et cetera. We're working with the Ministry for Primary Industries and making sure that we're, that, you know, we're, we're reporting back to them and keeping them abreast of what we're seeing. Yeah. So in wild birds, we don't often have the luxury of antibiograms. I think, especially in private practice, due to um, cost recovery, um, and then also the time that that bird is going to stay in clinic. You probably just want to treat it and be sure that it had at least a good cover. Um, if you do need to give antibiotic, for instance, if there's a, a 
cat bites where you'd be concerned about pastoralosis and those wounds then closing over. So sometimes you won't even see little puncture wounds. So if there's any doubt as to whether there was a cat bite, it's probably safer to err on the, the safer side and then give it treatment of enrofluxacin. I know you also mentioned in one of your other talks that even just the saliva on the feathers can affect the bird when they're pruning, they can then ingest that bacteria. Yes, it's, it was one of the most interesting things I learned about in this job, actually. It was such, such a surprise to me that uh, yeah, even ingesting the cat saliva for a bird can be deadly. So we always advise people who have seen a bird that's been attacked by their cat or has even just been carried around by their cat, that they have to let us know that and they have to get it to the hospital if they can. If we don't know, you're absolutely right. It's it's better to treat even if you're not sure is to start that course of antibiotics because that can be quite deadly, especially for the small birds. Airway related antibiotic would be the safest one would be there and the most efficacious one would be doxycycline. And that's the one that is also used for chlamydiasis. And yeah, that's quite a painful injection, I remember. But luckily, this is a once a week treatment. So you don't need to handle the bird and, and hurt it too often if you do need to treat it for chlamydiasis. And then enrofluxacin can be put in feed and water as well to make sure that the correct dosage goes in. It's probably a good idea then to give that with the food um, if you do crop feeding. But it can also be given as an intramuscular or a subgut injection, even though that can cause um, a bit of irritation. It can also be quite painful, um, especially in your small patients. So Jordana, an internal and external parasites, do you guys often see that in clinic? Is it a big problem to be aware of in wildlife? One uh, common external parasite that we do see is ticks on red-billed gulls, for example. That's something where you, you don't necessarily always see the ticks. They may have had their fill and dropped off. So there's not always a, a necessarily an external sign, but the gulls will present with sort of, they're ataxic, they're a bit sluggish, you know, they just kind of have that sick bird look be a bit wobbly. Uh, and it's because they have this, this high uh, parasitic tick load and they can come back from that. We just need to pull all the ticks off and treat them with frontline essentially. And they can come right, but that's probably the most common external parasite that we see. And we certainly do see patients with internal parasites and it's not always a problem. Uh, I think there's probably generally always some load for wildlife in that regard. Um, but interestingly, we, we do work with a parasitologist, a researcher at the University of Otago, and we, if we have patients that, um, that didn't survive, she'll take the bodies and she's looking, essentially looking for interesting things happening with parasites. And she's even discovered a couple of new ones in our patients. And I believe we have a parasite named after the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital. I don't know exactly what it's called, but I guess That's honor, exciting. I, it's, it seems like an honor. We'll take it. And then just quickly touching on some common conditions that might be seen in bats, if someone ever brings a bat into clinic. So I don't want to make them off as less important, but I don't think people will sometimes in their lifetime get to see a bat, you know, and an injured or hurt bat. But um, still, the long-tailed bat is critically threatened and the short-tailed bat has a vulnerable status. So it is important also then if those come in that, dog needs to be informed of that and one interesting thing that I did not know is that even if a dead bat is found you still need to inform dog because they might want to have a post-mortem done on it or just figure out whether there's a problem in the area so that's definitely something I did not know and it's really important as well for our listeners also to know that one 
So fats can sometimes present with minor tears in the wing membrane, and that can actually heal naturally. You can just leave them. And if it's if it's really bad and um, there's need for it, you can debride it, but usually it won't suture that hole because that will just cause more damage. And you will just um, cover it with a dressing to keep it moist and like a topical antibiotic ointment can also be used on, on those wounds. And then similar to a bird coming in with a bite wound or suspected bite wound from a cat, they should also be treated in the same way. And enrofluxacin can safely be given to bats. And always a good idea then to combine that with fluids in birds as well, because the bacteria releases endotoxins. So it's quite important then also to support the kidneys in that way by, by giving some fluids. And general wounds, amoxicillin clavulonic acid, always a good go-to and safe to use in, in bats. And yeah, like we mentioned previously, the most important thing with bats actually is to keep them warm and keep them from going into torpor. Another thing that I wanted to ask, is salmonella a problem in wildlife? Sure, yeah. Salmonella is one that we do expect to find in the wild bird population in the winter, perhaps, as, as maybe a seasonality to it. And one of the reasons is because of hygiene at bird feeders. So it is possible for birds to pass salmonella to one another at bird feeders. That's quite a common transition point, I guess, for a lot of different birds. And so that's why we always encourage people to keep their bird feeders clean, wash them with hot soapy water you know, at least once a week, ideally more often than that, if you have a lot of visitors to your feeder. It's not a thing that we see very often in, in the hospital necessarily, but we do try to keep the public aware that they have, you know, they have um, a part to play in, in keeping it out of the wild bird population. And then lastly, we also need to remember that birds and bats also feel pain. And they also get inflammation, just like our other patients, and meloxicam is the go-to as an anti-inflammatory and an analgesic. And then if a pure analgesic is needed, buprenorphine is a safe one to use as well in those species. So, Jonana, I think to summarize, you've shared so much information with us. And I think it's really, really been great to talk to you. And the listeners will hopefully take away some good guidelines around wildlife and what to do when they encounter them. But I think one of the most important takeaway points for today is that I would like to encourage our colleagues to develop an SOP around wildlife, just a basic SOP, um, figure out what the doc officer's um, contact is in your area, or at least have the general doc hotline at hand. Do you want to repeat that number again? Yep, it's 0800-DOC-HOT. So that's 0800-D-O-C-H-O-T. And that is a 24-7 line. That's right. And then also make sure that you make contact with the Wildlife Rehab Network so that you know what you have available, what support you have available. And that will be the first steps in triage is actually then to figure out um, what you're going to be able to do with this patient after you have treated it and will it be worth going through that effort and then just taking it step by step if indeed you do decide then to treat a patient a vet can then go through the steps very easily of doing a basic assessment checking for wounds checking for gross fractures temperature just assessing it neurologically really basic assessment stabilizing the patient then through fluids, maybe some glucose, and then make decisions from there on whether you need to do x-rays, possibly do blood and so on, or then refer the patient 
and get hospitals involved who are really, really equipped for this. And Jordana, like you said, the wildlife hospitals, the wildlife hospital specifically in Dunedin and then other hospitals that work with wildlife are more than happy to cooperate with general practitioners as well. And they are really set up then to to take these patients in. Absolutely. Yeah. The wildlife hospital in Dunedin is always ready to help vets if they if they're unsure, if they need advice on dosage rates or next steps, or even advice on whether or not it's a euthanasia case just straight right off the bat. So if you're in our area, if you're in the southern half of, of the South Island, by all means, reach out. If you have a wildlife patient you're not sure exactly what to do with, there are a few other wildlife hospitals in New Zealand. There's the South Island Wildlife Hospital in Christchurch. There's Wild Base at Massey University uh, in Palmerston North. And both Auckland Zoo and Wellington Zoo also have uh, some wildlife capacity at their zoo hospitals as well. There's one other thing that I wanted to ask, because when I looked at your website, there wasn't really a contact number or anything. It's just a doc number. So how can vets reach you if they need to, you know, for instance, check those rates and so forth? Yes, I will give you my contact number. Is it okay if I put it in the podcast details at the bottom? Yeah, you can put my, I would certainly appreciate as well if you include my email address as well as a resource. Oh, awesome. So to our listeners, all the relevant links will also be posted with this podcast in the comments. And Jordana, thank you so much for your time and just being so willing to help and assist and um, cooperate with the general vets. And um, hopefully this topic is a little bit less scary to our general vets now. And yeah, hopefully some of the vets and nurses will even enroll for that wildlife course at Otago. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, we're all in this together and we all have a part to play. And yeah, please use us as a resource. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Vet Chat NZ, proudly brought to you by Verbeck. If you made it this far, we'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you might have for future episodes. If you'd like to get in touch, please email matt.wells at verbeck.co.nz or call 0800 Verbeck.